Hello and welcome to Be Bell Podcast with myself, Sean Horn. So it's May 2020 and we're living in very unusual times. Most of us have been indoors for a good couple of months and it may feel like a long journey ahead. But remember, as Bebel says, hashtag be supportive, be positive, be happy, be bold, be a little bit badass, and most of all, be kind, not just to others, but also to yourself. I know it's not possible all the time, and that's why I really wanted to record this second series of the Bebel podcast, just to give us all a bit of a lift and listen to some amazing women and their stories. So when I decided to do the second series during COVID, I had to think about the first person I'd like to start us off. And I couldn't think of anybody better. Just over a year and a half ago, we recorded Strictly Business with Sonia Lennon on RTE. And so today I'm delighted to introduce her to you. Welcome to Bebel Podcast with myself, Sean Horn. I am delighted today um, to relaunch the podcast with the person that was there right at the beginning, Miss Sonia Lennon. Welcome, Sonia. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's just so lovely because it just takes me back to Strictly Business, um, where we first met, and um, like how this all this journey all began um and it's weird to think it all started with a clothing idea which is still still there but uh, then became so much more about community and women and support and empowerment um, and it's just been such a lovely lovely journey yeah it's funny you know because i'm actually um i'm uh helping companies at the moment helping particularly smes to um unlock their ability to find the opportunity in in the crisis to pan for gold and see where it is and you know the clothing line was the 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 fishing line if you like to get you out there to 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 feel your way around it and you know most things don't end up where we want them to go anyway so you know that's the way it's so true and actually it's 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 such a I I love this space I think it's such a good place to be Um, I've always been very fortunate to be surrounded by amazing women but now I get to speak to them and we get to share their stories which is is so good good so let's start with your story where did it all begin well, I, I actually only realized where it all began quite recently. It took me a long time to realize <clears throat> where my love of um, fa- fashion and clothes and image and all the good stuff that, that clothes can bring to you. Um, I hadn't really joined the dots until possibly about a year or two ago. And my mum, who unfortunately now is in a very progressed state of dementia, um, a big shout out to my amazing dad who's caring for her at the moment, cocooning with her at the moment. But she was a transatlantic air hostess when it was literally the most glamorous thing that you could do in the world. And she was back and forth to New York. And um, she, she used to bring, you know, trinkets and, you know, I was the first kid I knew who had leg warmers, like that's that sort of thing. And, um, and I, I am pretty sure now with my sort of armchair psychologist hat on um, that I became enthralled by the idea that I would be the kid that people and the adult that people would go, wow, that's amazing. 
because that people started saying that to me when I was about 10. Uh, oh my God, where'd you get that? That's amazing. And that's actually, um, I obviously became a little bit addicted to that. And so um, that theme ran throughout everything that I, I, I did and everything that I um, chose to use as my armor, I suppose, going forward. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Malahide in North County Dublin, right beside the sea. And my uh, idyllic childhood, um, fabulous friends who I'm still friends with. Um, we travelled into school uh, into St. Stephen's Green every day on the train, getting into uh, crazy situations and loads of trouble, um, but managing to stay afloat and significantly just enough below the radar not to, to cause absolute mayhem. Um, but the summers were... Uh, always barefoot you know just walking down the road to the beach um hanging out with the gang jumping off high rock and low rock and swimming and just having a great time it was bliss and do you have any siblings Sonia I have one sister Ashling, who is six years my junior and she is literally one of my best friends she's amazing she's a secondary school art teacher um and uh we are chalk and cheese. The, the phrase that we say about ourselves is same ingredients, different cake. <laughs> okay. I know, I have four sisters, so I know yeah. how it works, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we always say we're all so different, but we all have the same mum and dad, so yeah, the same morals. Yeah. Expressions are very similar. You'd know we were sisters. Yes. But, yes. Um, and, and when you went to school, were you sporty? Were you more creative? Where, where, did, you, where did you sit? I was definitely in the creative zone. I um, I couldn't get my head around team sports. I just and I wish I, I wish I had, but anyway, there's nothing I can do about that. I didn't. Um, I see the value of it now with my own kids. Um, and there's a huge amount of parallels in life and business around the lessons you learn from team sports. But I was kind of um, more of a lone ranger. I I did gymnastics and swimming and uh I mean not not exceedingly well or anything but I was on a gymnastics team and we competed um, I loved speech and drama that was my that was my big thing um, and I would compete in in drama uh fetches and competitions and stuff like that loved that um, but art was my absolute love and uh it was always sort of creating making making clothes out of curtains and you know m painting murals on my bedroom wall yeah and did your mum teach you to make clothes like where did you learn that from yeah well my, my mom made her own wedding dress um oh. she, she made bridesmaids dresses for her sisters my granny uh made costumes for the um amateur musical society so costumes were always costumes and clothes were always around always yes. around so there was always a, a ream, a tull, or a bit of sequins, or yeah, that, that was omnipresent. Yeah. And so you, I was going to say, that's another one where people are going to go, oh my God, that's amazing. I'm sure you never were short when you were in the school play of having the best costume. <laughs> my, our attic at home in Malahide was like the BBC or RT costume department. I mean, because my mum, my mum wasn't a fan of throwing things away. So like... I remember on one particular occasion, we'd a friend, a friend of mine was staying in our home at the time. She'd, she'd come back from abroad and uh, we were all slobbing about, the, you know, 
just it was a weekend day or whatever we were in our pajamas and my mom said don't even think about coming to the dinner table unless you're dressed up don't even think about it um go and get dressed for dinner and we went up uh, and raided the attic and came down in um uh ballroom uh yes ballroom dresses ballroom gowns um, and ballroom dancing gowns and I was just such a hoot you know my mum got a great great kick out of that but uh, yeah you could always find whether it was a, a lime green uh, cat suit with cut out windows at the side from the 60s or whether it was you know a bit of 70s disco glamour it was all available at arm's length. That's amazing and so after school where did that take you? Well, after school was a bit of a, a mess in some ways, I suppose. Um, I had wanted to go to art college. I'd wanted to uh, study fashion design in NCAD. Um, and my parents were really kind of dead set against that. They didn't think it was broad enough, um, a third level education. They felt it was going to be very difficult for me to make a career out of that. And to be honest with you, I think if I had, if I had done it at that stage, it would have been very hard. Yeah. Um, but actually, um, something kind of extraordinary and horrific happened. Um, there was a fire in my school um, and tragically six nuns died. It was convent school. Um, and uh, as a fallout from the fire, the art room was destroyed and all of our portfolios were destroyed. So um, I couldn't apply to art college. Not that that was the worst thing that happened from the fire. Obviously, it was tragic. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of the cost of human life. Um, and so I had to kind of quickly rethink what my options were. And I went to uh, uh, a VEC, a Kloch Tadulik, to study communications, uh, do a communications foundation course. And that was video production. It was photography. It was writing. I, I absolutely loved it. I yeah. absolutely loved it. And, and then I messed up. I applied for uh, communications in IADT, which ironically, my husband is now the president of IADT. Anyway, oh, wow. I messed up the application and went for the wrong course. Um, so I didn't get that. And my parents said, right, you're not sitting around the house doing nothing for the next year. Get out. Go and, you know, you, you took French in, in, in school. Go to Paris and learn French. Um, so I trotted off with my little suitcase on my own uh, to Paris for a year and um, was absolutely terrified, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't, I'd never heard of the concept of a hostel. I didn't know what I was yeah. doing. I was completely set adrift. I had one contact who was a friend of a friend of a friend who was going to let me stay in, in their rooms in the Sorbonne. And for some reason that just went completely south very quickly. And I was out in my ear. Oh in my Paris. God. And I, it was actually, it was, it was an extraordinary thing. I had, I had been working in um, a boutique called uh, Camouflage, um, which was an amazing, very avant-garde boutique founded by Vivian Walsh, who still makes amazing jewellery. And uh, loved that work. And that was kind of early, what, you know, summers during bits and pieces. And that was before I went to Paris. And uh, one day I bumped into this girl and she said, oh, you sold me that jacket. It's one of my favourite things. And I said, oh, amazing. I said, well, look, you know, I'd love to get in touch with you. I don't know anybody here. And she said to me, I'm staying at this hostel um, 
here's the number of the hostel. And I just, at the time I was still staying in the, in the Sorbonne. I didn't think there was any crisis. And when I was kicked out, I was told you have 24 hours to vacate the premises. I, I picked the, the phone number out of my pocket and I rang and I asked to speak to the girl. I told her what had happened. And she said to me, okay, there's a queue of about 40 people every morning to come and get the first available beds in this, hosp in this hostel. Yes. Um, I'll sneak you in tonight. You can stay in my room and then in the morning, you can be top of the queue on the inside of the building to get the first available bed. Amazing. It was amazing. amazing. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I, myself and one other person in the hostel were the only two people who had suitcases and not backpacks. And that other person is still one of my best friends. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So we, we, uh, eyed each other up at the beginning uh, in kind of um, jealousy and guardedness and kind of thought, hmm, you know, there's a bit of a challenge and ended up bonding over uh, dancing to Prince into the wee hours. Oh my God. And how old were you then? 20. Okay. And we, we think we know so much, don't we? Oh, we knew nothing. Yeah. We knew nothing. But we had a ball and, and it, was, it was an amazing time. And actually, if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, I actually just posted a photograph of me sitting beside the uh, pond in the Jardin de Luxembourg in that exact summer. Um, and it, it just takes me back. It was amazing. I loved, I loved that time. I, I, I was a Prince fan too. And um, yeah, just not a care in the world. Um, working hard, yeah. but, but, but no real worries or understanding yeah. of what worries were. Um, I, I, I go back there tomorrow, I tell you. But, um, and so what did you, whilst you were in Paris, you were in Paris for 12 months? Yeah, roughly, yeah. You were working? I was teaching English over the telephone. Okay. How did uh -huh. you, two French people, I presume? Two French people. Uh, two, so it was a, um, a tax break that the French gov government had launched um, to allow... Uh, French employees to, to allow companies to, to teach their employees English for free, basically. And so this company had set up with a, a very, very uh, defined process around how you would teach English over the telephone in, in audio lessons. And um, I got a job doing that. And I, <laughs> so I had my regular clients and that was, and they were all set times. And, uh, but I would hold the lessons uh, in my bikini from my balcony, sunbathing, um, probably drinking a glass of wine. Um, and uh, I used to be very bold. I used to say to them uh, in English, well, obviously in English, it was all done in English. And I said, okay, um, here's the next exercise. I would like you to describe um, what you think my situation is right now. And they'd say, uh, well, uh, you are sitting at your desk and you are wearing a, a suit. And I was like, so yeah I had great fun oh that's amazing and so when your 12 months were, were done were you ready to come home so I applied for um never want to do things the way they should be done I applied for a postgraduate course in PR in uh Rathmines while I was over there and without obviously having done the degree and I had decided that I wanted to do fashion PR. That was what I wanted to do. And when I came back for the interview, the interview panel said to me, um, what is fashion PR? 
and and I don't think they were asking to test me. I think they hadn't really thought about it themselves. Yeah. And I explained the function of a fashion PR. And I had flown back in. I, I actually I said to them at the time, oh my God, the, the set of balls on me. I said to them at the time, if you don't mind, give me an indication of whether I've been successful or not. It's just that I have to fly back to Paris tomorrow. <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, it's looking good. And so I came home to take up that course in the September. And where was that course? In uh, DIT in Rock Mines. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, you, so you stayed close to home? Uh, yeah, relatively, relatively. And uh, did that course, had sort of mixed feelings about it. We got to meet some really great people. And was still, I was still working in the boutiques at this stage um, while studying. And that's really, uh, so I worked in camouflage and I worked in another fantastic boutique called uh, Firenze, which was uh, run, uh, owned and run by a woman called Louisa Lachlan with amazing, amazing sense of style. And we were selling, yeah. you know, Dolce Gabbana, Comme de Garçon, Yoji di Yamamoto and Mulamuster, like amazing uh, avant-garde labels that hadn't, well, you know, they, they were very rare in those yeah. times. We were talking the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I suppose it exposed me to a level of international fashion um, that really just wet my appetite. Um, and I suppose it was there that I started to see the stylists coming in and, um, you know, borrowing clothes to use for photo shoots. And uh, I just thought, oh my gosh, that is the most amazing job in the universe. Okay, so that's where your you change your your mindset went to there. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I I caught myself saying, "Oh, I would love to do that job" a number of times, and then kind of sat myself down and said, "Well, if that's what you want to do, what's stopping you?" Um, and I, you know, I was a kid; I'd no concerns, nobody to care for at that time. So I went freelance at that stage. What had happened was I had started to build my portfolio. I'd started using. Uh, weekends, days off, holiday time to go and do shoots, to put shoots together with photographers. So if there was an emerging fashion photographer who wanted to, to create a test shoot, we'd pull a team together, we'd create it. Um, and then I was kind of amassing a body of work, something yes. that I could call my own. And then very shortly after that, I was asked to assist on a shoot uh, for a magazine called D-Side, which was started by Melanie Morris. And uh, she had brought over a friend of hers who was a, a stylist based in London at the time to do the first fashion shoots. Uh, and Sally said to Melanie, look, that kid has something. I think, I think she can do it. Um, and Melanie took a punt on me and uh, within a very short space of time, I was doing two shoots uh, a month for the mag and that moved on to me becoming fashion editor pretty quickly. And from there, then I started to do music videos, uh, TV commercials, uh, fashion spreads for other magazines, campaigns for, for brands. Um, and it was amazing. It was amazing. And so when did the transition come from being behind the camera to being in front of it? Um, so that was 2008. So at that, while I was a stylist, I had been kind of yeah. engaged with RTE as a talking head on uh, originally head to toe and then off the rails. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. I had no particular aspiration to, to, um, to take it as a career choice, but I enjoyed it when I did it. Um, and what happened was I was asked, would I do a segment for the show? Um, a makeover on uh, 
plus size women. So would I, um, would I do a makeover? And I said, absolutely not. I'm not doing a makeover. Uh, that's not what I do. I'm a fashion stylist. Um, and I'm not interested in makeovers. And they said, well, we really, really want you to do it. And I said, well, okay, I will do it if we treat it as a fashion shoot. So if we create a magnificent tableau celebrating these women's bodies and in all their voluptuous curves, um, and if it's a beautiful thing, I don't want it to be distanced from that. Yes. They said, okay, fine. So we had about maybe 10 women. At the time, it was pre-ecom, so we had to call in plus-size clothes from all, all four corners of the island. They were all shipped in. It was a mammoth production, mammoth production. And as you can imagine, it's hard to get larger-size clothes now. Then, in 2007, as that was, uh, or, or early 2008, it was nigh on impossible. Um, so we, we, we managed to pull it together. We managed to make every single one, one of those women feel amazing um, and uh, it was a beautiful segment and I remember the producer said to me on the day um, I don't think this is the last you're going to hear of this and I was like okay fine whatever um, and within uh, within two months they'd come back to me and said would you consider hosting the show brilliant and that was it and, and before I knew it um, I was paired up with Brendan Courtney and the two of us were presenting off the rails I was going to say, yeah, um, how, how quickly did that happen? Very quickly. Literally a couple of months uh, afterwards, uh, the, the negotiations and conversations started. But I was a very, very reluctant participant. Um, as far as I was concerned, I had a really good career as a, as a commercial stylist, as a creative stylist. I had a, a, a stable of clients that, that loved me and I loved them. There was a continuous flow of work. Why would I jeopardize that to go and do something that I wasn't particularly chasing? I didn't know whether I'd like it. Um, I didn't know if it was the right decision for me. And I agonized over for, while the negotiations were going on, I was still really reticent. But then I suppose the epiphany that changed everything for me, not just then, but actually everything after that, was I realized that it was an, an opportunity had presented itself. If I said no, the chances statistically of somebody else asking me to host a primetime TV show again were nil. Yeah. If I said yes, I could try it. If I didn't like it, I could walk away. Um, and I suppose it was that kind of pragmatic analysis that has, um, I've brought that forward to everything since. And I've also, I think, um, reframed change and fear in my head um, as good things. Yeah, and I think like how useful that is in these times. Um, yeah. You know, I know we spoke a long time ago about fear and in business, I don't have an awful lot of it. Um, and actually this morning I spoke about it on my Instagram because I was nervous for today, not to see you, but, but actually this is the first time I was going to be recording myself and editing myself. And so it's that nerve of the unknown and can I do it? Um, and you have to step back and go, you know, this is ridiculous. This recording something is much smaller than you are as a person. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it, but it's still with everybody all the time. So it's a real, and I think it's a real issue for women as well. And um, I did, you know, I work with a lot of women in business and that fear factor is, is still an issue for people all the time, not just in times that, like we're living in, in today. 
So the the writer, the fabulous writer um, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, has a, she's brilliant on this. She she says two things. She said um, so. One of I, I think the concept of perfection is a red herring. So I think we like to call ourselves perfectionists um, because we're afraid of not not being perfect. And and she says perfection is fear in a fur coat. Um, it's kind of the acceptable face of fear is to say, oh, well, I'm a perfectionist, you know, that's not a good thing. (laughs) Being a perfectionist is an impediment to you failing and, and succeeding through your failure. The other thing she says that I love is that you can't, um, you can't kill your internal fears and they're always going to be there. But what you can do is learn to manage them. And the analogy that she uses is that you can Bring fear along on the ride, but it has to sit in the booster seat in the back. It can't uh, choose what music you listen to. It can't choose the snacks and it can never give you directions. <laughs> I love that. It's brilliant, love- isn't it? Yeah, I only managed to write down half of it. <laughs> I'm going to be listening okay, back you're to that. it. <laughs> I'm going to to that. No, I love that. And it's so simple. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And so you started with Brendan. Um, and you're still with them. It's like, and like, how did that evolve? Like, obviously from the TV program, then starting to design your own clothes. Like you're such an amazing team together. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had our challenges at the beginning. Um, and I suppose Brandon entered in, Brandon had done TV before he'd done two hundreds before I hadn't. He knew that the success and mental health of everybody concerned rested on us um, trusting each other um, and respecting each other. And they would be two values very, you know, core to who I am anyway. And um, I suppose uh, uh, a couple of things happened where I knew he had my back at the beginning. And and then uh, there was one particular incident where somebody was... um, somebody was manipulating a situation was, was, was actually kind of creating false realities um, trying to cause trouble basically. Yeah. And, and it was, it was having its effect. It was doing its job. And I remember sitting on the couch in my home uh, on a Wednesday night and it was just niggling at me. And I knew, I knew there was some, there was a, there, there was a tension between us that wasn't right and it wasn't deserved. And I, I said to Dave at the time, I said, uh, honey, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go down to Panty Bar and just talk to Brendan because this is not right. And I went down on my own, went, it was full scale disco and Panty Bar at the time, tapped Brendan on the shoulder and I said, we need to have a word. Whatever you think is happening is not happening. I would never do anything to undermine you, to do anything other than support you and us together. You need to know that right now. And once you know that, any other information that you get can be assessed on that basis. And we just hugged. And to be honest, that was the best thing that could have happened. He also had my back on any number of occasions and, and proved that um, our relationship was more value, valuable at that time to him than his survival. And I think we were both lucky enough to move into a stage where it wasn't about survival. It was about thriving together and that was a joyous thing yeah no I mean yeah being real and transparent yeah 
that's it's always the best option. And and so when you decided that clothes um, with Duns, did they approach you or did you say, this is something we want to do and we want to partner with them? It, it actually started with us um, when we were when we were presenting off the rails, we would consistently rate highest in RTE for trust with the audience. So people trusted us. They saw us saw us as experts. Um, they they liked us, um, and we felt that by just being commissioned presenters, we weren't maximizing those attributes, and we felt we needed to create something ourselves that we could own um, that would leverage the profile, the trust, the recognition um, into an asset. And so we, we founded two companies. We founded uh, Len and Courtney together and we founded Frock Advisor, which was, um, it was a market, marketplace platform for boutiques. Yeah. Um, so it was putting boutique owners and boutique shoppers on one platform for discovery and for purchase. And so um, it would have been equivalent, I suppose, at the time of what Instagram shop is now that you could purchase items from, from a post yeah. um, and it didn't exist at the time. Um, it had its own challenges. It also had its own aspirations. Frock Advisor was going to be the great white hope. Um, we took in a huge amount of funding. Uh, at the height of Frock Advisor, we had 17 staff. We had an office in Eastwall in Dublin, uh, in the digital dockland. We had an office in Old Street in London. Um, we were going to we were going to do great things, but for a number of reasons, too long to go into. It it didn't happen. Um, and and Len and Courtney, on the other hand, was completely bootstrapped. Um, we we didn't take any investment. We we took a couple of loans, which we were personally liable for. We didn't take any money out of it. We, we created something out of nothing. Um, at the beginning, we had the help of Arnott's. They, they were very supportive in, in bringing us to market, both in R&D and also in uh, committing to 50% upfront for the original order, which allowed us to produce. Um, and we also sold into boutiques. So at the beginning, we were an independent label and we sustained that for two and a half years, so five seasons, and it was so hard. It was so, so, so hard. The model itself was, was self-destructive. The bigger it grew, the more it needed, um, the less we could take. In fact, we never, ever took it. I, I actually, Brendan asked me one day, can I just ask you, during that time when we were launching those two businesses, can you remember how we paid our mortgages? I was like, I have absolutely no idea how we did it. Because I, 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 I just don't know. I don't know how we lived. I know that I shipped my family out and... and and Airbnb'd my family home as we stayed with my parents whenever the opportunity arose. But I've no idea how we survived, absolutely none. But we did. And um, two and a half years into Len and Courtney as an independent, at that stage we'd been profiled by Vogue uh, UK um, on the opening day of London Fashion Week. We were stocked in Harvey Nichols, in Arnott's. We'd about 30 retailers in Ireland and the UK. Um, our order book was up 26%. On paper, we were flourishing. But the reality is that we had twice yearly cash, cash flow crisis that nearly gave one of us an embolism and it just was not sustainable. And at one stage, um, Brendan just said, that's it, I'm out, can't take this anymore, it's too stressful. And I, I knew that there was value in what we created. I knew the proposition was good. I knew people liked it. I knew more people people liked it that could afford it and um, so we had to remodel the entire business 
Yeah. Pick it apart and put it back together again. And we approached Duns at that time and we said, look, would there be an appetite to talk to us about licensing the Lennon Courtney brand into Duns? And one thing led to another and very, very swiftly we, we transformed the business. And it's amazing. And I, and I love your seasons. I love the way it comes out. Um, it keeps everybody just waiting with anticipation every few, you know, um, but you do so much and you know, you're such, you're, you're a fashion designer, you're a stylist, you mentor, you're an amazing ambassador for women. Like what is your favorite thing you do? Um, I don't know, because I kind of feel like they're all ingredients of the one thing. Um, and myself and Bren kind of had to dig deep to understand what makes us both tick. And so the three values that run through everything that we do are empowerment, equality and confidence. And so any anything that I do or, or commit to is because I've said, yes, it ticks those boxes. So I couldn't separate dress for success from Len and Courtney. I couldn't separate lift from presenting. I couldn't, you know, everything is interconnected. Um, and I think, uh, I think I could only ever work in that way uh, in a sort of a tapestry career that, that spans a lot of different things, mainly because I have a very, very low boredom threshold. <laughs> so I would be, yeah, I wouldn't like doing one thing. Yeah, no, I get it. And and I have to say, I'm loving Left Alone, your new podcast. Oh, I love it too. I have a huge place in my heart for that. Yeah, no. And I think podcasting is such, I mean, it's, it's a huge growing space at the moment. But uh, no, I've really enjoyed your first, are you on seven now? Seven, six or seven? Yeah, one more to go. Just the holiday episode is the last one in this season. And we're about to start recording season two now amazing Sonia your predecessors on um Be Bell podcast um always leave a couple of uh questions so I'm gonna go I've never done this Excellent. full subject before so I'm just gonna exciting one and we're gonna have a little question and hopefully I can read their writing oh interesting okay certainty is the enemy of change how do you embrace change yourself I gamify it and, and I see it as an opportunity to uh, unlock a playground. And actually that is the, the strategy that I use in negotiations as well. And I think that's very powerful um, that you should never enter into negotiations of any kind with a sense of fear because actually the only thing that can get you close to what you want is um, a, a bit of power and a bit of fun. Like it's a game for God's sake, whatever it is you're trying to get, you know, see it as a game and see the change as a game. And, 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 you know, ask yourself, what would your best friend say to you? No, absolutely. And yeah, I speak to myself like my best friend often. I yeah. think it's important. Um, Finally, just one little quote that you live by or one little piece of advice that you could give to people. Um, go for it. Yeah, well, for me, it's linked to the change piece. Um, and it was when I was setting up Dress for Success, which was the first ever kind of 
organizational development piece that I did. I had no background in, in business development at that time. And I see Dress for Success as a business, even if it is not, not, not for profit, it still has to function like a business. Um, and I was, I remember one New Year's Eve, just before I launched, I'd been granted the internet, I'd been granted the license from the New York office to bring it to Ireland. And it was New Year's Eve, I probably had a few glasses of champagne and I started to cry at the, at the weight of what was ahead of me, what I needed to do to make this a reality. Um, and the person I was with said, the thoughts of doing something are always a hundred times worse than the doing itself. And that is so true. We, right. we bring so much baggage to the table in terms of our future fears. Actually, just do it. And, and, and the other one that's the companion piece of that is that... Um, action eats intention for lunch. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So you can have all the intentions in the world. They won't make any difference. It's only when you act that things change. That's amazing. Sonia, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I am so pleased to be 12 months into this podcast and um, God, I wish you the best with just everything. You're amazing. Thank you so much. We didn't even get to talk about you. (laughs) Oh, we'll do that another time. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.